So at the end of the sitting, I was looking around the room and up at the ceiling, which is one of the places that for some reason I always look and remembering the day in, I think it was 1998, when we opened this hall and we all gathered here and we came in chanting the Dhammachaka Sutta. And uh, which is the turning of the wheel of the Dharma. It's the sutta that has the four noble truths in it. And just, I uh, just filled with gratitude for this place and all of the enormous generosity that has made this place possible. So I hope you're also able to feel that. Is this loud enough? It feels like I'm a little remote somehow. A little louder. Okay, we'll see. You just, okay, great, thank you. That sounds a little better. So here we are. We've been doing this for 48 hours now. You've probably counted every one. So um, Bob forgot to congratulate you last night. He usually does that at the end of the first day. So I will congratulate you on the end of the second day. And we entered into the body today with those wonderful groups of parts, head hair, body hair, nails, teeth, skin, which is such a profound and wonderful practice and one that I did myself on a recent retreat, although I was also using it as a way to kind of anchor myself in the body and then at the end of it I would remind myself that I'm going to die because I'm going to be 70 in October and I think it's time to get real about what's sooner or later going to happen. I'm hoping a little later than sooner, but, you know, we never know. But it's so amazing, this body, isn't it? You know, that, and I love it that we bring some of these little facts about 450 hairs in your eyebrows. Who would have thought? Right? And not only that, they all leave and new ones come back every three to five months, you know? I mean, what, what is this? And that, that, those stats about the square inch of skin with all the nerves and the millions of bacteria and the pores and the, I don't know what else is in that square inch of skin, but it's sort of like, wait a minute, three, mil- three million bacteria? Is that what it is? 32 million. That's a lot of bacteria walking around on my body. So, you know, and then, because I'm interested in these things, I'm thinking, and all of this going on, and it's all quite literally composed of stardust. We know that now to be true, that every molecule of your body came from a supernova sometime, some billions of years ago, very far away. And here it is, walking around, having bacteria and bones. And I don't know, it boggles my mind, you know, that makes this, this being human so utterly mysterious. And not only, you know, is the body mysterious, but then there's the mind, you know, this mind. And one of the 
statements that the Buddha made. He said at one point, he said, luminous is the mind, brightly shining is its nature. Luminous is the mind, brightly shining is its nature. But my guess is at the end of the first two days of the retreat, you might question that. You know, that the the mind is not necessarily feeling very luminous at all, and or it might even be quite the contrary. And you may be more having an experience that is actually about being pretty lost a lot of the time. So here's a poem for those of you who are feeling lost. It's from David Wagoner, and it's called Lost. And so this is his advice if you're lost. He says, stand still. The trees ahead and the bushes beside you are not lost. Wherever you are is called here, and you must treat it as a powerful stranger, must ask permission to know it and be known. The forest breathes. Listen, it answers. I've made this place around you. If you leave it, you may come back, again saying, here. If what a tree or a bush does is lost on you, you are surely lost. Stand still. The forest knows where you are. You must let it find you. So you are lost, but you're not lost in the forest. You're lost in the retreat. But one of the things that's true is the retreat is not lost. The retreat is not lost. The retreat knows where it is and it knows where you are and you can let it find you. So you can listen to the retreat just like you would listen to the forest, listen to the talks, listen to the instructions and let the retreat carry you. Let the retreat in a way do you rather than you doing the retreat, which is how we often hold it. But letting the retreat do you, let the retreat cook you, takes a lot of strength and courage and patience and often the mind and the heart aren't very easy with that. And the image that I've always loved for working with the mind on the retreat comes from our Tibetan friends and they say the the nature of the, they're not talking about the luminous mind, they're saying the untrained mind is like the cold, icy, rocky soil of the Himalayas. And in that cold, icy soil, what you're doing in training the mind is trying to dig drainage ditches. So whenever I hear that, I think, oh, that sounds like so much work. But you know, it is, isn't it? And it, it is work, what you're doing, training the mind to be here, to be present, to be with this body, to be with this mind in a way that is kind and compassionate, in a way that is open-hearted. And although we aren't, you know, we are focusing so much on the body in this retreat, 
the body is not separable from the mind. You know, we can't, we can't do that. And so, as Bob stressed last night, and I think again at some point today, maybe this morning when we did the body parts, you know, awakening happens within this fathom-long body. This is the container that we have. This is our ship. This is what takes us through life. And it's inside this body, not the short distance away from it that Mr. Duffy lived at. It's inside of it that we wake up and where we look at the nature of the mind and the heart. So I wanted to talk tonight about training the mind and some of the difficulties of it. So I want to start with the beginning part of a story. So about eight years ago, my husband and I bought a property on the big island of Hawaii. And we have there, oh, I don't know exactly what it is, it's somewhere between a half and two-thirds of an acre of land in Volcano Village. So we're on a volcano, which makes life a little interesting. And we're in the heart of the rainforest. And when we bought the property, the, which has, does have a house on it, um, the forest was just chock-a-block full of kahili ginger, which is a very invasive, lovely plant. And it's beautiful to see and to smell. It's very tall, has big broad leaves and gorgeous yellow flowers and utterly fragrant. And it completely takes over and blocks out all the other plant life. And in our case, it just filled the woods. It screened the house from the road. We had a house sitter there at the time. She loved it. She thought it was fabulous not to be able to see out of the house. So for a while, as we you know, sort of settled in and began to get used to this place, we let it be because we were getting acquainted with the land. But we came to find out that this forest of ours had a lot of native plants in it. And we began, as we began to talk to people, to be educated about what was there. And so we learned about these native and endemic species, and we learned that they were hidden by the ginger. And we began to have a very clear sense that the true nature of this land was lost to it. So what to do? You know, how could we, how could we help the land in a way? And, you know, we didn't want to poison things. That didn't seem very good. And and you can dig ginger out, but it's a hugely labor-intensive and difficult process because the corms are really big and deep. And so a gardener friend, somebody who was working with us on the property, who was very knowledgeable in permaculture, said the thing to do was to start chopping the ginger down and to leave it there, leave it where it lay whenever we chopped it, and it would, in the end, give up. So with a deep breath, we weren't so sure this was really true, we began. So here at the retreat, you have entered into an intense period of cultivating your mind and heart. Many of you have practices that you do at home and on a regular basis. But most of us, if not all of us, are not 
practicing however many hours a day. Somebody's probably figured it out. I don't know what it is, this retreat. But it's a lot of hours that you're practicing, sitting here on the cushion, doing Qigong with Marcy, doing the walking practice. So we enter into this period. We entered in on Friday evening by taking refuge, refuge in the Buddha and the Dharma and the Sangha. And we suggested to you that night when you were taking refuge that this wasn't just refuge in the historical Buddha and the historical teachings, but also that it was the refuge in the nature of your own mind and heart. And that it's refuge in the potential that each one of us has. Each one of us. There is no one in this room who does not have this potential. And that is the potential to wake up completely. Everyone here has that inherent Buddha nature, it's sometimes called, the ability to wake up. Everyone has this luminous mind that is brightly shining in its nature. But you might be dubious about that at this point. And the second half of that quote actually says, luminous is the mind, brightly shining is its nature, but it is colored by the attachments that visit it. So there are things that block the luminous nature of the mind. And here, as I've listened to some of you today, and I know Bob has and Marcy has, you know, your bodies are hurting and you've been filled with sleepiness and when you're awake, I loved that quote from Bob's talk last night with the automobile or whatever it was, careening down the hill, you know, the crazed mind just filled with desires and thoughts and upset, just out of control. And here you are kind of out of control and you keep coming back. And some of you have talked, it's been so sweet. You know, you talk about coming back over and over and over again. There's almost that sense of, oh, you know, how many times do I have to come back? And it's a major challenge and you don't feel like Buddhas. You know, I don't imagine too many of you had the thought, wow, this must have been how the Buddha felt today. You know, I just don't think that's one of those thoughts that comes on the second day of retreat. But of course, the cool thing is that we all notice, and I have mentioned it in a couple of my conversations today, is you look great. You know, (laughs) we look out at you and you look still and quiet and peaceful and a different thing happens, there's sound, there's bugs, there's one thing, but you all just sit there, you know. So something's going on. So where is this Buddha nature, you know? Where is it? It's not on the list, you know. It doesn't go head, hair, body, hair, nails, teeth, skin, Buddha nature. It'd be kind of <laughs> nice if it did. It would be easy. So it's not findable in this crazy and obsessed mind. So it's likely to be true, as the Buddha said, that just as my land was covered with these invasive plants, so too the true nature of the mind is obscured. So most of us, I imagine, have gardened at some point in your life. At least, you know, if nothing else, the little cup that you had in kindergarten with the seed in it that sprouted, right? And most of, you know, probably many of you have done a little bit more gardening than that. And some of you probably are quite familiar with 
how wonderful it can be to take care of a little piece of land. And, and I know I have that feeling when I get a day when I can weed, boy, there is nothing better than a day when I can weed. It just makes me so happy to be able to be out, whether I'm here in California or whether I'm on the island. It's rather like a retreat, you know, digging and transplanting and tying plants up and introducing some newcomers and seeing that some of the things I put in there really like it better over there and, you know, that kind of thing. And I've spent some really blissful days um, taking care of the land and in Hawaii chopping at that ginger. And you know, as gardeners, think about this. Have you ever criticized your garden for having weeds? Do we ever beat up on the garden because the weeds grow there? You know, we, we, I have opinions about people who introduce invasive plants. That's true. But that's not the garden, you know. That's the people who bring invasive species into places like Hawaii. But we don't get caught in that place of judgment and criticism around our gardens that we do around the mind. You know, when the mind is obscured and having difficulty, what's the first thing that happens often? The judgmental mind kicks in and starts telling you what a bad meditator you are and how you probably really ought to go home. You know? And if not go home, uh, you'll tough it out, but, you know, why? So that's actually not such a, a helpful place. And in the garden, what we do is you start weeding. You know, one weed at a time, pulling out the weeds. And so maybe we could consider working with the mind and the heart in the same way, in the same way. So we know that the mind and the heart are filled with all these brambles and difficult things, and we even know what some of the causes are. But it still doesn't keep us from having that sense that it's not right and we feel some shame and some guilt and that thinking we should go home and and you know the wandering mind and the fear and the obsessions and the fantasies and the sleepiness and the restlessness and the doubt they are present for experienced practitioners as well as for those who are new I was having a conversation with Kathy, one of the managers today. She's just done, in recent years, some very long-term practice. And we were laughing about, about how sometimes we have this phenomenon that we call yogi mind, where the mind, the mind begins to get concentrated. And you may have noticed this. There isn't too much difference between the concentrated mind and the obsessed mind. So it locks on to something. Like, why don't they do the lights differently or do this differently or do that differently. And, you know, you can get yourself into a lot of trouble with yogi mind because you're just so obsessed. And I was laughing because, you know, I'm a teacher. I see this all the time. I see people get, they have Vipassana romances like Bob talked about or Vipassana vendettas and, and the mind is so hooked into this thing. And I can sit there and laugh And with all of my retreat experience, guess what? Next time I go on a long retreat, I will probably have a case of yogi mind somewhere along the line 
because I'm not a fully enlightened being and because these things happen to really experienced practitioners. So last night at the beginning of his talk, Bob mentioned the hindrances. So these are some of the things that come and really obscure our awakeness. And so they're greed and hatred or aversion. I love the name of this, sloth and torpor. Always sounds, sounds like a bad law firm, actually. Uh, <laughs> restlessness and doubt. So greed, hatred, sloth and torpor, restlessness and doubt. And then there's actually a smaller list that it has the first three on it that is called the obscuration. So it's that which keeps us from seeing. And the other thing that, the other term that sometimes comes around in terms of difficulties in practice is, is resistance. It's a psychological term. But we all know it because many of us have had psychological um, experiences. So many of you, you know, half of you are experienced sitters and you're probably sitting here thinking, oh, the five hindrances again, oh no. You know, because we've heard so, so many talks about the hindrances. But as I say, the experience doesn't make them go away any more than having a perfectly manicured garden means that you will not have weeds in it anymore ever again because, you know, after a while, the weeds come back, the dandelions and the ginger, and they come with all their friends and relatives and allies just like the hindrances do. They're deeply rooted in the mind and the heart, and they are deeply conditioned by years and years of habit, and they're not easily eradicated. So, on the land, one afternoon, a few months after we'd bought it, I decided I wanted to see what was out there. So I got a nice big knife and got on my boots and I went out and I began to chop the ginger down. And it was, it's very, it's very easy to cut ginger. It's very satisfying. It's whack and it falls over. And, you know, pretty soon I began to discover, look, there's a whole tree fern in there. I mean, sometimes really big tree ferns, you know, five, six feet tall that I hadn't been able to see because of the ginger and lots of smaller ferns. And there's a wonderful plant that I love that's a relative of the African violet, except it's got leaves that are about this big. And many, many others. Some of them are really teeny, teeny plants and beautiful moss-covered logs, all kinds of things that were in there. So on that trip, I just began to chop. And I chopped for a lot of days, and sometimes some of the other people who were there with me, my husband and friends, helped. And when we left, the place looked like a mess. It really looked like a mess. There was down ginger everywhere. But our gardener said, leave it, because then it decays, and it nourishes the land, and it helps to support these native plants. And of course, there were a lot of places where I hadn't begun to chop yet. And then when I went back a few months later, um, you know, all those places were still there. And in the places where I had chopped, the new ginger had started to come up. And that time I was doing a month of solo retreat. So I did chopping as my work meditation. And um, I cleared more and removed more of the new growth and Left the, left the other to nourish the forest. And so that pattern repeated itself over and over again for most of the last 
eight years. So it's just the same way here. It's just the same way here. Even if you've heard all those talks about the hindrances, even if you've sat a lot of retreats, they come back if we are not constantly watching and weeding. But each time we do the work, each time we do the work of the practice, each time we do the work of bringing energy to our practice and attentiveness and then the residue of that work, just like the residue of the fallen ginger, nourishes the land of your heart and mind. And so it begins to create the conditions for a healthier, more awake heart and mind. So we've mentioned, and I think in the instructions this morning, that there are four foundations for mindfulness. And we've been working these last two days with the first of the foundations, which is that of the body. And the 32 parts of the body is a practice that comes out of the teaching on that first foundation of mindfulness. The body and also the breath. That's following the breath is, is one of the body practices. The second foundation, which we'll begin to talk about in the instructions tomorrow, is the foundation of the feeling tone of our experience. And that's the place where your experience is pleasant or unpleasant or neutral. And we get caught by that because if it's pleasant, of course, you want more. And if it's unpleasant, usually we're trying to get rid of it. And so it can create a lot of thought if we're not paying attention to that foundation. And all of a sudden you discover you're planning a three-month retreat, you know, because you're having a pleasant sitting. Or maybe you've even bought the airline tickets to get to wherever you're going to do that three-month retreat. And, you know, you're not here anymore. The third of the foundations is the foundation of the mind itself, being aware of the state and the conditions of the mind, even aware of thinking. And then the fourth is the foundation of the dharmas. It's the things that you come to see the Four Noble Truths, the Eightfold Path, the Five Spiritual Faculties, the Seven Factors of Enlightenment, those kinds of things. And the five hindrances are on that list. So this is part of the foundations of mindfulness, beginning to be aware of these obstacles, these difficulties, very well known in every meditation practice. So the image that's often used is the, is the image of the mind as a clear pool. So again, here you are. This is the inherent nature of mind, is that clear pool. But sometimes desire comes along, and that's as though you had poured dye into the pool, and it had colored all of the water. So everywhere you look, you're seeing through the color of that dye. Everywhere you look, you're seeing through that desire. It colors everything that you do. And with aversion, it's as though the, the water that started bubbling up from the bottom, like one of those boiling um, pools that you see sometimes in thermal areas. So all of the bubbles of the aversion create a lot of disturbance in the water and you can't see clearly. Restlessness is as though the wind is blowing over the surface 
And you, you know, when the wind is blowing on the surface of a lake or a pond, you can't see below the surface. You just, it's all you can see is the surface itself. You can't go very deep when you're restless. And sloth and torpor is like algae and slime, and it's getting all kind of gunky and green and yucky and very, very difficult to move around in. And then doubt is when it starts to dry up a little bit and it gets muddy instead of clear in water. So, you know, we know these places, right? Is there anybody here who doesn't know those places? By now in the retreat, probably every one of them has visited you. And they they come in various configurations. Sometimes you get one or two, you know, a little bit of desire, you know, lunch begins to loom and you can kind of, everything is colored because you're hungry and you're leaning out towards lunch or, you know, there's a few minutes when you're really restless and and you can't seem to settle down and get below the surface, but then you do. But sometimes, you know, you get an invasion, right? They all come at once. We have what's known as a multiple hindrance attack. That's a little like that description that Bob read last night of the the vehicle rolling down the hill. So it's interesting because what do we do? And I think about that house sitter in my house who was really happy in there with all that ginger. She didn't, she was annoyed that we were proposing to do something about it. And you know, we get really comfortable sometimes with our hindrances, don't we? We're so used to them. You know, they're known patterns of the mind. And sometimes we really believe the stories that have come up around them. We believe our anger. We think we're right. We are, you know, we just have to do whatever we're going to do, say whatever we're going to say, and the mind is just obsessed. And we don't at all see that it's a difficult mind state. Or we don't at all see that the desire is a problem and getting in the way of seeing clearly. Or we don't realize how tired and fatigued we are. And so that that cloudiness that comes, we're used to them. And sometimes we think that they protect us. They're like, they're defense mechanisms that protect us. So with the garden with my piece of forest, I trusted my gardener friend who told me that about the true nature of that land. And so I began to want to see the land for what it was. You know, what would it be like? So here, can you trust the Buddha? Oh, that's a good question, isn't it? Can you trust the Buddha? Can you trust us? You know, those of us or other teachers you've had who point toward that awakened mind. You know, the Buddha says very clearly, anyone can wake up, anyone. There's a lovely story somewhere in the literature about a monk who wasn't so bright, and his job was to clean the temple. You know, So he'd sweep and sweep and sweep and dust and wash the windows and get it all spiffy. And guess what? After a while, he had to sweep and sweep and sweep and dust and dust. And he began to realize that part of the process was this cleaning, purification process that often has to happen over and over again. So it takes a certain amount of faith to begin. You know, we have to have some willingness to trust. That's the, the beginning understanding of faith in the Buddhist world. 
And so it's like, the image that's given is it's like tracking an animal in the forest. And so you find the tracks, right? And, and you think, oh, there might be an elephant in the forest. That's what was interesting in the time of the Buddha. And so you begin to follow those tracks. And probably every one of you is here because you're following some track that someone laid down for you weeks ago, months ago, years ago, and you began to follow it. But And here and there, just as if you're tracking an animal, you begin to get glimpses, signs that the animal's really there, then that also happens for us and may have already happened for you here. The glimpses, somebody, a couple of people said today, oh, I had, I had one, I had a pretty good set, you know, or a great set, you know, and so you have a great set and you go, oh, it can be done. Because the catch is you come back in the next set wanting to replicate it, right? Which doesn't always work so very well. But we begin to know, oh, the mind can soften and relax and open. There can be more kindness and more compassion and more equilibrium, maybe even some insight or some little piece of wisdom that arises. So that inspires us to keep going. And the same thing was true with my land, you know, as I began to uncover those plants, these amazing tree ferns that we have there. I was so inspired. And so that's what inspired me to keep on going, to keep on clearing the land. And we keep on going here. But we first have to admit that the hindrances are here. You know, so when you begin to see, oh, I'm angry or irritated or filled with desire. The first line of defense is not bad yogi. The first line of defense is, oh, here's desire. Here's anger. Or as our friend Ajahn Sumedho would say, this is what desire is like. This is what restlessness is like. You know, Jack used to invite us to be the first yogi to die of restlessness. And I don't know what that would be like to die of restlessness. Sounds pretty unpleasant. But, you know, the invitation to go deeply into it, not to move away from it. And it's a very, very important first step. So here's a reading from another great Catholic mystic, Francois Fenelon. He says, When the cure begins... He says, as the light increases, we see ourselves to be worse than we thought. We are amazed at our former blindness as we see issuing forth from the depths of our heart a whole swarm of shameful feelings like filthy reptiles crawling from a hidden cave. Poor guy, he was having a bad retreat. (laughs) We never could have believed that we harbored such things and we stand aghast as we watch them appear. We know that place. You didn't know you were so angry. You didn't know that you had lust like that or doubt like that. Bear in mind for your comfort, we only perceive our malady when the cure begins. So he's really saying it's very, very important, that place where you begin to see what is so. So there's, there's seeing it 
And then there are antidotes. It's really important to know this, just as with weeding, sometimes there's things that you can do to prevent the weeds, different plants that you can plant or ways of planting, all that kind of thing. There are ways to work with the mind and the heart so that these things diminish. So with um, greed, that place where the mind is always leaning out to the next thing, the antidote is to remember that everything is impermanent. Whatever it is that you want is not going to last. Whether it's chocolate, or the man or woman of your dreams, or the perfect set, or the concentrated mind, it won't last. It's impermanent. Everything that has the nature to arise has the nature to pass away. And sometimes that can kind of just puts the brakes on a little bit, you know, in the desire world. With hatred and all forms of aversion, fear is uh, one of them. And um, the antidote is loving-kindness practice, that practice that we've begun to teach. We taught it yesterday in the afternoon. We'll teach it again a little bit tonight. You know, that, that practice of extending goodwill towards ourselves and towards all other beings. And it can be a very difficult practice to do when you're filled with aversion towards yourself or towards um, perhaps even another student on the retreat. And yet that's the recommended thing to do is to extend your goodwill and your kindness toward that person even when it feels hard. With restlessness, this is where you die, I think. With restlessness, the antidote to restlessness is concentration. So what that means is you kind of take a deep breath and you really work with something like just the breath, maybe even counting breaths. And the restlessness you know, it can feel very, very, it can feel very difficult in the body, actually, when you do that. But what is true is that if you kind of do it with some level of energy and effort, often you will push through the restlessness and then it will be gone. With sloth and torpor, we've already talked in here a little bit about standing practice, like doing your practice standing up if you're filled with sloth and torpor. We talked about how the Buddha suggested you could sit on the edge of a well. You know, that's helpful. You can splash your face with water. You can pull at your earlobes. You can do more walking practice. Um, You can sit in the forest where the tigers are. And we don't have tigers, but we do have mountain lions. And I've sat out there on occasion, and I'm here to tell you the awareness that there are mountain lions brings a certain alertness to your practice. You really pay attention to the sounds. So you could try it and your energy will probably come up a bit. And of course, the last resort is taking a nap if and you are well and truly tired. Sloth and torpor is interesting because we're still at the point of the retreat where it's likely to be about the fact that you came in exhausted and weary. But further on in the retreat, and certainly in a long retreat, when it continues to come, and, and if it's a problem, um, sometimes it's resistance. And so you want to look at that. The other thing to say, though, is that almost everybody has a sleepy time of day. No matter how long you've sat, no matter how well the retreat is going, you know, people, if you ask, 
if you were able to ask, you would find, oh, my, my sleepy sit is after breakfast, or my sleepy sit is after lunch, or my sleepy sit is the first city, sitting in the morning. And people just know when you can kind of expect it, and then you can kind of go, oh, sleepiness is like this, and investigate it as best you can. And um, when you wake up, then you're awake. So doubt, doubt is that place where we question the validity of what we're doing. It's not um, the thing that, where you want to see for yourself. That's actually something that we encourage here in the Buddhist world. But it's that place where even though you know something is true, you're beginning to kind of feel a little questioning and not so sure. And it's where we really need spiritual friends and teachers and sometimes we need a retreat to kind of add. Remember that image? That's when the pool begins to dry up. So you really need to add some water to it. So all of these, they're different techniques and different ways of working on them. It's a very useful time to have help from your teachers. And um, it requires effort. They all require a certain amount of effort and energy. The practice doesn't just happen. I think for a lot of years in my practice, I thought somehow it would just happen easily. And it doesn't, you know. It's a hard piece of work. So in tending the mind, there are, just like in, in gardening, there are things you can do to help prevent some of this, the weeds from coming in. In a garden, you know, you can mulch and you can and take care of your land so that these weeds don't come. And in tending the mind, there are states that you can cultivate so that there are fewer hindrances. And the one that I want to point toward tonight is actually developing your concentration. Because the concentrated mind has, the totally concentrated mind, has no hindrances. The completely concentrated. And as you get more and more concentrated, the hindrances drop off. So our friends who are upstairs, who are at the concentration retreat, that's one of the things that they're probably talking about. So concentration is that place where the mind can stay present and stay focused, can stay just with the breath, can stay just with the body. Sometimes it's concentration on one thing, like the breath. Sometimes it's what we call moment-to-moment concentration, where you're able to stay in the present moment, but you're using whatever is strong. And we'll talk about that more and more in the instructions, but it might be the breath, it might be a sensation, it might be a sound, it might be your sadness, it might be a sound again, it might be your irritation, you know, and so one moment after another, you're present using whatever is strong in order to anchor your attention. And developing that concentration will counter the hindrances. So there's some factors to just know about that will help. You can kind of listen for the one that might help you to support your, con- con- your concentration. So they, they are, um, there's applied and sustained thought. There's rapture and happiness. And there's one-pointedness of mind. These are called the jhanic factors. 
There's a lot of discussion about exactly what happens, where and when and how, and we're not going to go into that tonight. It's not really needed because these are factors that can be helpful to anyone at any time. So applied thought is that place where you can direct your attention to the breath, let's just say, to or whatever the object is, and you get right on it and you target it correctly. You're right there. It counters sloth and torpor, and it takes a certain amount of energy and intention and precision. And the sustained thought is where you can stay with wherever you've placed the mind. So you you actually, as one teacher says, you sustain the gaze. It's a phrase I really like. You sustain the gaze on the breath or on the sensation in your middle or on the ache in your knee or on the itch and you just experience the object and you really, you penetrate the object with your attention. And it counters, it counters actually some of the doubt because it's how you have the direct experience. There are experiences of rapture and happiness and the metaphor that's given, it's as though you're wandering in the desert, you're really thirsty and you see the oasis. And rapture is the ecstasy and the delight of seeing. You know it's there. And happiness is when you're actually drinking the water and pouring it over your head and wading into the pool and all of that kind of thing. And these, these, those will counter some of the aversive states of mind. And one-pointedness, that place that can stay just with one thing for an extended period of time, eliminates all distraction and all greed. And we just don't want anything else. You are happy with the hairs in your nose that are blowing in the breeze on the in-breath and the out-breath. And the mind doesn't go anywhere else and you don't want anything else It's just enough. It's quite an amazing state. So you can protect your practice by developing your concentration somewhat. And as we said, and as you follow the instructions, that will quite naturally begin to happen if you follow the instructions. So here's one last piece. All of the hindrances are not very far from that other list that I mentioned, the three obscurations of greed and hatred and delusion. And the not-so-good news is that in Buddhist typology, each of you has some tendency to be one of those types. You are more a greed type, or more a deluded type, or more an aversion type. So here's the test. You walk into this room, you've never seen this room before, and you look around and you go, fabulous. Wow, where did they get those beautiful statues? I'd like a Buddha just like that for my altar. And in fact, I'd like that tanka that's on the back wall. And I think the color scheme is really nice. I think I'll go find some paint and see if I can get the same colors. And pretty soon you're acquiring everything in the room for you. So you know what you are. 
That's the greed type. If you walk in and you go, what? How could they? Really? Two Buddhas? I don't think so. Silk flowers? What's the matter? We want real flowers. And how come we don't have carpet? Carpet would be so much quieter. And I think blue and green zafus would be much nicer. So then you're an aversive type. And if you come in here and you spend a bit of time and then you leave and someone says to you, how was the meditation hall at Spirit Rock? What'd you think? And you go, huh? Gee, I didn't really notice much of anything there. Then you're probably a deluded type because you're just not, you don't see things. So I myself am an aversive person. I can tell you that. Probably Bob and Marcy could tell you what they are. Um, And each one of you has probably some tendency. So what that means in your practice is you may have some tendency towards particular kinds of hindrances. So I have a lot of aversion in my practice sometimes. And it can be really a problem. It's the hindrance that comes most often. And other people have more desire or some people are really deluded so they get caught either in sloth and torpor or restlessness or both. So you can be alert. You know, if you have some sense of who you are as a person, then you can also know that you're more likely to be visited by one particular kind of hindrance. Now, it's really important to say, all of us have all of those three things, and we all have all of the hindrances. So it's just a tendency, you know, the the most likely thing. The definition of a fully enlightened being, just in case you'd like to know, is that it's a person who has no greed, no hatred, and no delusion. So there are no obscurations at all whatsoever in the awakened mind. And it's important to know that because there may be moments, there are moments when the hindrances aren't there, when you're concentrated enough and settled enough and the mind is awake And it's really helpful to begin to notice those moments because that's a moment of freedom. No greed, no hatred, no delusion. You're fully awake, fully present. Things are what they are. They're just, they are what they are. And it's fine. It's okay. Because if you notice them when they come, then you can kind of begin to string them together. And part of the art of this practice is to have those moments come closer and closer and closer together. So in our piece of land, just to come back to that for a moment, in these eight years of chopping, chopping, you know, each time I would come back, it would be better. And now when I go back, it's actually quite beautiful. I'm, I don't get to chop very much anymore. I just get to pull the little baby weeds out, you know. And the ginger, in fact, did give up and because the roots weren't getting enough to continue. So sitting after sitting, retreat after retreat, you are chopping at your hindrances, you are clearing away your obscurations. And it's really helpful to do lots of loving-kindness practice for your heart and for your mind, lots of reflection on impermanence, for that 
to, to counter that greed. Lots of standing and sitting on the edge of wells, lots of concentration, lots of input from spiritual friends. And what happens when we do all of those things is that the roots of the hindrances begin to diminish. There's n- the conditions for the hindrances are not there. They will not arise so easily. They're not being fed. So this is what Ajahn Chah said about that mind. He said, then your mind will become still in any surroundings like a clear forest pool. All kinds of wonderful, rare animals will come to drink at the pool and you will clearly see the nature of all things. You will see many strange and wonderful things come and go, but you will be still. This is the happiness of the Buddha. Sounds good, huh? So this is the true nature of the mind and the heart. And the true nature of my Hawaii land was its native forest with those wonderful native and endemic species. And the true nature of the mind is shining and radiant without hindrances. It's really important not to hold out for perfection, you know? It may be a while before any of us is fully awakened, completely without suffering. Might be several lifetimes. But Sylvia Borstein likes to talk about the third and a half noble truth, which is if you don't get an ending of suffering, you at least have less. And Dana Falls, Dana Falls, who's an amazing poet from Kripalu, has a wonderful line at the, towards the end of one of her poems. She says, perfection is not a prerequisite for anything but pain. Perfection is not a prerequisite for anything but pain. Please, please, don't continue to believe in your disbelief. This is the day of your awakening. It's not a problem that you have to weed in your heart, and your mind. It's a great pleasure to root around in the earth of our planet and it's a great pleasure to practice. It's a wonderful thing to be able to be here in this beautiful hall to practice. So here's two final poems to encourage you to, en- to enjoy your gardening. This is from James Charlton, um, a poem called Best Spiritual Practice. He says, best spiritual practice is to drop the word best, the word spiritual, the word practice. Is to re-enter your own garden, find each flower turned to the light. And Izumi Shikubu says, as I dig for wild orchids in the autumn fields, it is the deeply bedded root that I desire, not the flower. So let's just sit together and breathe for a minute, just as you are. Don't, you don't need to change your posture at all.
So thank you very much for listening this evening and please enjoy your walking practice. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.